So good evening everyone, welcome to our new weekly Soul of the Parsha class, but this time it's not the Soul of the Parsha because we're it's Purim and we're, the, the class is putting on a costume and it's becoming a Purim class. So we're not going to talk about the Parsha, we're going to talk about Purim and the scroll of Esther and we're going to ask a very simple question, uh, a, very, a very interesting question. We're going to ask what does the scroll of Esther tell us about the nature of femininity and masculinity? How do they interact? How do they change? How do they grow? How do they evolve? And how men and women can help one another fulfill our own deepest potential? Because we need each other. Both femininity and masculinity are a work in progress. They're constantly changing and learning and growing, as do all of us. But we need each other. Men need women, and women need men, and every man needs a woman, every woman needs a man. And generally speaking, masculinity needs femininity to grow, and femininity needs masculinity to grow. And this dance of the male and female is very much evident in the scroll of Esther that we read on Purim. The Scroll of Esther is a very deep, uh, cryptic piece of text that holds much more than meets the eye. It's all about things that are hidden from the eye. The name Esther means hiddenness. The Scroll of Esther means the, it could be translated as the Scroll of Secrets. It's all about secrets. The word scroll in Hebrew, Megillah, is about revealing because you open, you unravel. You unroll a scroll, and everything is gradually being revealed to you. That applies to all the scrolls, generally, and the five scrolls of the of the the Jewish Bible. But uh, in particular, it has to do with the scroll of Esther because the scroll of Esther is about revealing the hidden. This is the meaning of Megillat Esther, Gilui HaEsther, revealing what is hidden. The main thing that's hidden in the, par, in, the, in the scroll of Esther is God himself, godliness. God is hiding. It's the last, the very last book to enter the Bible. There was a big debate whether it should be in the Bible or not, because on the surface it seems like a very, very human document. It seems like a piece of history. Sometimes it seems like a bit of satire, a piece of satire, but really... Although God's name is not to be found in it at all, God is all over the place. He's hiding in every verse, in every sentence, in every turn of events. Everything there tells us about divine providence. And it tells us about how God really is revealed through history. In many ways, the Bible is something that shows us how God is reveals himself in history in a revealed way. That's most of the Bible. He intervenes with history through revelation, through miracles, through uh, suddenly uh, interjecting into the universe and taking his people out of Egypt and giving them the Torah. However, once we reach the scroll of Esther, it's regular history. It's history without any overt miracles, without anything that we can see God's intervening. But he's, he's there. He's there in the coincidences and in the 
chain of events and in everything that appears to be a coincidence or appears to be just human affairs or appears to be just interactions between different people, he is guiding everything from behind the curtain, so to speak, from uh, from behind from the backstage. So this this also applies to relationships, generally relationships, relationships between different people. There are various complex relationships within the scroll, but we need to remember that all relationships in the world began with the first two people in the world. And the first two people in the world were a man and a woman. So in many, in many senses, all relationships, all the various complexities and the, ne- the various complex networks of relationships between different people and generations, it all boils down or it all comes from the interaction between the male and the female essences in, in, in how they appear in the world. So that's what we want to examine in this parsha. We want to go deep into this very secret and deep of texts, and we want to see how the again the apparently very down to earth, very unmiraculous events they all hide deep secrets. And the secret we want to look into is the secret of the masculine and the feminine and their interaction. Now, as an introduction, we should say, each and every one of us is a very complex human being. Each one of us is unique, we're individuals, uh, and also we're not, uh, we can't be summed up as belonging to a certain gender or another gender. We can talk about masculinity and femininity, but we have to be careful when doing that, because men are very different from one another, and women are very different from one another. If we say that masculine and the masculine and the feminine are very foundational forces, in reality, we should also say that each one of us is like a unique mosaic of masculine and feminine um, attributes and properties. And that's, that means we can't be narrowed down or pigeonholed into a, particular, uh, into a particular sex or gender. But the thing is that although each one, each human being, is a unique mosaic of masculine and feminine properties, all these mosaics ultimately inhabit either a male body or a female body. And that means that once we go down from the level of the individual psychology and the very, very unique psychological makeup of each individual, once we go down, down to earth, down to the body that we inhabit, then the, the, the element of generalization, of, of looking at what, is, what can be, the, what are the general characteristics of men, as a group, and women as a group, of masculinity and femininity, it becomes very, very vital to understanding the full picture of who we are. So that means that we're going to characterize masculinity and femininity, and we're going to see how they evolve. It doesn't take away from from each one of us being a unique mosaic. It just means that we want to see the full context of who we are. 
So although men are very different from one another and women are very different from one another, there is something all men have in common, the fact that they inhabit a male body, which has certain characteristics, and it attests to the fact that this is their part, at least part of their calling, part of their um, purpose, of their duty when they come down to this world. And the same goes for women. All women who are very, very different from one another, they all inhabit a female body, and it means that there is some characteristics, there are some characteristics that all women have in common, and that those 50% of human beings that inhabit a female body, it, it tells us something. It tells them, them something about who they are and what they're supposed to be, to be and to do in this world. Again, without taking away from the individuality. So, having said that, we can go deeper into what, what this scroll is telling us about masculinity and femininity. Why open with this question? Why choose this question? How, how can we say that it's very much connected to the story of the scroll? So the, the answer is really very simple. The entire scroll of Esther, the entire story, begins with a marital dispute. It begins with a fight between a husband and a wife. It's King Ahasveros, Ahasveros, I'm going to call him Ahasveros, as I say in Hebrew, and Queen Vashti. She disobeys him, and he is angry, and quickly it deteriorates into a full-on political scandal. And it, and it also has ramifications for all households in the kingdom of Ahasuerosh. All men and women are touched by this new decree that is put in place in the very opening chapter of the scroll. So this topic is placed front and center. Uh, we have this topic of masculinity and femininity and the tension between men and women it's very, very present in the, very, in the opening. It may not be the topic of the scroll. The, to the, the scroll of Esther has, has other topics that appear to be far more uh, central and dominant. But this topic very clearly opens the scroll. So this means that uh, it's, it's vital. It's very important here. It's something we need to look into. Also, there's another thing that we can see. The Scroll of Esther tells the story of a big complication that takes place and then how that complication is removed, or a threat that appears and then is removed. The threat is Haman's decree that all Jews should be exterminated. And then finally a solution is found and it doesn't take place. And there is a big reversal of fates, v'na'afochu, and the Jews become from the persecuted to the persecutor, or they, they defend themselves, and they're, they're able to have the upper hand, and everything is resolved. And it, it would appear that everything goes back to how it was. Maybe it's a little better than how it was, because now again there's no looming threat in the form of Haman and his persecutions. But this is basically something that goes full circle and goes back pretty much to how it was in the beginning, but everything is a little improved. That's when you look at the political, general situation of what ha what's happening with the Jewish people, and again, they have a threat, and the threat is removed, and now they have the upper hand. 
But there's another very big thing that absolutely changes, but it doesn't happen on the political level, it doesn't happen on the level of, of the Jewish people, it happens on a very, very individual level. And what happens is, and in many ways the most solid change, that the narrative, that the events described in the Scroll of Esther, uh, what they really change in, in what's happening there is that we have a man and a woman who are very negatively depicted being replaced by another man and a woman who are very positively de depicted. Haman is replaced by Mordechai. Mordecai, Mordecai takes the 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 role of Haman. He he he's put in charge of his house. He replaces him uh, in in his role in the palace. And of course, even before that, Esther replaces Vashti. So, and this isn't a, a, this isn't a, a circle. This isn't things going back to how they were with an improvement. So maybe it's not a circle, it's a spiral. This is a complete and utter change. Vashti and Haman are completely thrown out of the picture. And Vashti, sorry, and Esther and Mordecai are now placed very in very key positions within the palace. And they replace the other couple. So we have a a bad woman and a bad man being replaced by a good woman and a good man. So, in a way, uh, this is the key to what we want to do this evening. We want to look at these two replacements, and we want to explore them as referring to the rectification of masculinity and femininity. So, the Haman is going to symbolize negative masculinity. Vashti will symbolize negative femininity. And then Mordecai and Esther are the personification of positive masculinity and femininity. And the fact that what happens throughout this scroll is that the negative couple, they're not a couple, but they're, they're a kind of couple, as we'll see, in the sense that they complement one another, and, and they have similarities between them, the negative version of masculinity and femininity will, re will be replaced by a positive version of masculinity and femininity. So this is a very interesting way of reading the scroll. Now we're going to start by looking at a verse and then a rabbinical interpretation for that verse, because this is the foundation for uh, everything that we're going to do, to do this evening. So this is the verse. The verse is in Isaiah. Um, I didn't put the I didn't put the the place, but it's in Isaiah fifty five thirteen, and it goes like this. It, this is a positive prophecy, but it's very symbolic, as all prophecies are. And it goes like this. It says, "Instead of the thorn, a cypress shall rise. Instead of the nettle, which is again a very thorny." plant that burns the skin, a myrtle shall arise. A myrtle is hadas, it's, it has, it's, a, it's a, a, a bush that has a, a wonderful smell, and we use it, of course, on Sukkot, on the, the Festival of Tabernacles, is we take the four species, and one of them is the hadas, the myrtle. So this verse 
tells us about, it's symbolic, it tells us about negative, thorny, burning plants that will be replaced by very positive um, sounding, uh, you know, the images of very positive plants, which is the, the cypress tree and the myrtle, uh, uh, you know, bush. So let's see what the, what the sages do with this. So it goes like this. Let me just make sure I'm, I don't cover the text. So each element here is uh, interpreted as referring to someone in the scroll of Esther. Instead of the thorn, meaning instead of the wicked Haman, Haman, who turned himself into an object of idol worship. What's the connection? As it is written, and upon all the thorns and upon all brambles. So in another verse in Isaiah, which came before, he talks about punishment given to all the places of idol worship, and there the idols are referred to as thorns and brambles. And the, the Hebrew word for thorn here, there are several words, but the Hebrew word that's used in these two places, again, it's, it's, it's both in, Isha, in, in the book of Isaiah, is a very, very rare and unique word. It's na'atzutzim. And these are the only two places it appears in the entire Bible. So they make, they make the connection. Instead of the thorn, the thorn is like an idol worship, or something that presents itself to be, that should be worshipped. And this is Haman, he... He turned himself into something like an idol. He wanted everyone to bow down before him. So the thorn needs to be replaced. It's a big, annoying thorn that we need to get rid of. So instead of the thorn, this is Haman, a cypress should rise. Cypress in Hebrew is brosh. This is Mordecai. Why? So this is a, a little bit complex. We need both Hebrew and Aramaic to understand this who is called chief, Rosh. Rosh, uh, the word Rosh is similar in sound, and is in, in, when you listen to it, it's included within the word Brosh. He's called the Rosh of all spices. As it is stated, and we're going to read this soon in the weekly reading of the Torah, take you also to yourself the chief spices of pure mir. Kach lecha besami as it's going, uh, um, it says, Besamim, uh, I don't remember the, whenever I need to teach this, I, I forget this. Um, anyway, the point is, I can't see the verse now. So, that the pure mirror is called Mordro. And Mordor is translated into Aramaic, this is a very basic translation that we use all the time, as Maridache. Maridache sounds like Mordechai. Maridache is Mordor, Besamim Mordor. And, and this is called Rosh Besamim, it's like the head of all the spices or the perfumes. Spices that have good smell, it's not just spices, it's spices that have a, a positive, very wonderful smell to them, like a perfume. So, Mordecai is likened to a cypress because of this uh, interconnection of, of words, of Rosh and Brosh and Mordror 
and Maridach is a translation of Mordro. So, then what's important here is that the cypress doesn't have a good smell, but the cypress is now connected to another plant that does have a wonderful smell, which is myrrh. Now, so that's just one thing. That's the thorn replaced by the cypress. This is Haman replaced by Mordecai. Now, instead of the nettle, which is in Hebrew is called sirpad, who's the nettle? Instead of wicked Vashti, daughter of the son of the wicked Nebuchadnezzar, who burnt the ceiling of the house of God. So to burn is lisrof, and ceiling is refida. So if you connect saraf and rafad, the root of to burn and ceiling, you get sirpad, which is the Hebrew word for nettle. So, we don't know much about Vashti, but we do know that she was the granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar, who, was, who destroyed the first temple. And we know that it was through her that Ahasuerus became king, because he married, he was a simpleton. He was, uh, he was uh, just a regular person, but he married the princess, and so he became the king. So her being a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar is extremely important. The whole lineage, there's something very negative about it. And, and, and somehow she also embodies her grandfather's um, uh, sin, which is burning the temple. So, instead of the nettle, which is Vashti, what shall arise? A myrtle, Hadas. This is, of course, the righteous Esther, because Esther's Hebrew name is Hadassah. This is the simplest of them all. Esther is called Hadassah. And it's explicitly said within the within the uh, within the scroll. This midrash is the foundation for what we want to do now. This midrash tells us what we do, what we said before that we have these four figures. We have two men and two women, and the the positive ones have to replace the negative ones. And in many ways, this is the main thing that changes in the palace of Ahasuerus. So there's the threat for the Jews, and the threat is removed, but when all is, when all is over, and you know, the dust settles, and we look at the palace, then we see that Vashti and Haman are out, and Esther and Mordecai are in. So this is what we want to, uh, we want to understand now. Again, the, the way we want to go about it is we want to see uh, Haman and Vashti, not as just representing these two people, but, but as negative versions of what masculinity and femininity should be and can be. And then Esther and Mordecai replacing them is another model, a more rectified Jewish Torah model for masculinity and femininity. And, and again, it's, it's not a one-time event. In the scroll, it's one time. You have one negative figure, and he's tossed out, and a positive figure is put in uh, in his place, or in their place. But really, it's something that's a constant, you know, process, and it's something that we have to grow and, and work on. Now, let's note the fact that the verb that appeared twice in the, in the original verse is shall rise, ya'aleh. A cypress shall rise. A myrtle shall rise. 
So what does it mean that the two positive figures need to rise? There's a topic that I talk about often in, in my classes, and those of you who come to my classes or heard several of them have, have heard me speak about this, and this is called the topic of the rise of femininity. According to Kabbalah, the, according to the Arizal's writings, uh, femininity is constantly on the rise, ever since the beginning of time. There's deep reason, a deep Kabbalistic reason, for the fact that throughout most generations there has been inequality between the sexes, and only now, in recent generations, is equality beginning to appear in the world. There are many secular explanations for this, uh, and none of them is very, very convincing. Uh, or either, or they, they are convincing, but they appear to be tragic. They appear to be like, well, that's how it was, and now let's just fix it as soon as possible. But the thing is that according to Kabbalah, it's, it's deeper than that. And the reason is that femininity itself is something that grows more gradually and slowly, and it has to do with going through a process, more than masculinity. There's something about masculinity that's more constant, that's more stable, that's, more, that, that's just what it is. And, of course, it, it goes through some changes throughout history, but femininity is something different. It has to do with growing and maturing from below to above. Masculinity is about coming from above to below, coming from some ideal or theoretical principle or truth, and then just trying to put it down uh, into this world. But femininity is about growth. And we can see this in uh, whenever a, a baby comes to the world. The role of the father is instantaneous, it's just one moment. But the role of the mother takes place over a long period of time of gradual growth that takes place within her body. So the same goes for femininity and masculinity and the way they evolve and mature in the world. So this is a very, very basic, very, very broad topic in Kabbalah that talks about the evolution and growth and rise of femininity. And the idea is that as we're coming closer to the messianic times, to the time of redemption, says the Ari, and he's writing this in the 16th century, we shall see equality taking place between the sexes, because women are going to rise to the, to the same stature as men, and they're going to also be learning Torah, and learning w wisdom in general, and there's going to be equality. It's, go it's not going to be this very, this totally asymmetrical relationship that used to be in the past, that the men would be the leader and the teacher, and the woman would only be the one following and being the receiver, and the receiver end. It's going to be mutual. Women are going to both learn and teach and lead. And, there, and there's going to be a reciprocal relationship between men and women, and masculinity and femininity. So this is the rise of femininity, and Estelle is one of the clearest examples. In fact, all, many, most women, most central feminine figures in the Bible are uh, examples of the, or illustrations of how the rise of femininity can and should take place. And the idea is that the women of the, of the Bible were ahead of their times. 
So femininity on the whole takes time, and only in, re- in the, 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 the past century or so, it's beginning to come to the surface. But there have been individual women who went through this process in the past, and we, we see this in the, in the mothers, the matriarchs, and we see this in uh, figures like Tamal, and also and in the prophetesses like Devorah, and also in Esther. Esther is one of the seven prophetesses, and she is a very clear and beautiful example of a, a woman who begins her journey appearing very docile and very quiet, but then discovers within her amazing powers of influence and change and initiative, and is able to, to create this whole revolution within the palace and ultimately save the entire Jewish people. So the, Esther is a, is a very basic example of the rise of femininity. The rise of femininity is also called the rise of Malchut, Aliyat Malchut, Malchut referring to the last Kabbalistic Sefirah. The final Sefirah is called the Sefirah of Malchut, which means kingdom or kingship. And regarding Esther, it says, Vatilbash Esther Malchut. Esther assumed or entered the position or enclosed herself within the property of Malchut. Malchut being here, she really means that she became the embodiment of this Kabbalistic Sefirah, this divine power. And, and Malchut is rising and Esther is rising with it and causing the, the Sefirah to rise further. However, in the verse from Messiah, it says not only that the nettle, which is, the, the myrtle, sorry, which is Esther, shall rise and replace the nettle, which is Vashti, it also said that the cypress, which is Mordecai, shall rise and replace the thorny Haman, meaning there's also a rise of masculinity. This is, this is not a topic that exists so much in Kabbalah, because the main figure to be on the rise and who goes through the more dramatic change in her position in reality and her stature is the female uh, aspect of reality. It's the female figure. The female figure begins history, as we all know, as only belonging to the, to the tent or the house, to the private realm, not the public realm and was excluded from learning and leading. And so women now beginning to learn and lead and teach and all this and become uh, active forces in shaping reality is a a huge revolution. But men, they don't have such a big revolution waiting for them because they've always been in charge, right? But that's not exactly true. There's also a rise of masculinity. It's more subtle, and it has to do with connecting to a deeper deep a deeper and more internal and also a little bit more feminine including a feminine element within masculinity that softens masculinity that makes it less coarse and also it's very clear that the change in masculinity needs to take place because if we believe and we adopt the notion of the rise of femininity Clearly, men have to change also, because if men are used to only being mashpi'im, influencers, leaders, teachers, they're used to being above women and to look down on them 
and not to be and not to see them on eye level, not to meet them on eye level, and now they do have to meet them on eye level, and they have to not just talk but also listen, and and listen not just pretend to be listening but really listen and learn because now their women have something to teach them that they couldn't know before because women have their own spiritual. Uh, inspiration that they're receiving from above that men are not receiving. This is one one important aspect of the rise of femininity that the DRE is talking about. That once women rise, then an, a sort of spiritual channel opens up to them that they can receive certain knowledge and, and perspective on on the Torah and on, on the nature of of human beings and the nature of serving God and the nature of the of the soul that men are not private to and in and and regarding that they become the teachers and the the men become the students so obviously if men have to start re- treating women differently it's not just treating them with respect it's also genuinely listening and learning from them then it's clear that men need to grow as well so there is a more subtle but all but as important a notion which is the rise of masculinity. And the, the verse that we, we just showed, we just looked at, uh, that says that under the thorn, uh, cypress should rise, and under the nettle, a myrtle should rise, says that they're, both sexes are rising. So, uh, this is something we need to, we need to understand. Um, now we want, let's take one more step and, and make this even more interesting. In the beginning of the scroll, uh, when the scroll describes the huge banquet that King Ahasuerus is, uh, is putting on, which takes place for 180 days, it's half a year, it says that the rule for drinking was no restrictions, okay? For the king had given orders to every palace steward to comply with each man's wishes. He says, everything is allowed. Anything you want, you can have it. You can have as much to drink as you want. There's no rules, no restrictions. It's a totally liberal society. And it's, that's what Achashverosh does. Now this last bit, to comply with each man's wishes, in Hebrew, it goes la'asot kirtzon ish va'ish, which literally means to do, to perform the will of a man and a man. So it means each man, each man's wishes. But it says a man and a man, as if there are two people here or two men here. And then the sages say, what are the two men here? It's Mordecai and Haman. Mordecai and Haman are the two main masculine figures of the parsha. We can also say that, what, what about Ahasuerus? Well, Ahasuerus, to think about him, why is he not part of the, of the four main figures here, right? Uh, there's something about Ahasuerus that he's sort of, sort of a nobody. He's the king, but he appears to be this sort of bumbling, un, you know, he's not really sure what to do. He keeps consulting his... his uh, uh, ministers, and and he's drunk half the time, and according to the sages, he really is nothing. He's like a puppet, and he's he's a stand-in for God Himself. God does not appear in the scroll, but God is operating through Achashverosh. 
he becomes angry, then he becomes happy, then he goes this, is this, he appears to be this capricious king. And the central moment, the most, uh, the, the most coincidental one, but the one that changes everything, is that when he, he can't sleep. So this, of course, is, this is God's hand interfering with the scroll, that he makes him, that he can't sleep. Anyway, Ahasuerus is not one of the figures here. So we have, uh, he has this rule that says, uh, I want every man to fulfill his wishes, and every man in Hebrew is man and man, and the sages say man and man is Mordecai and Haman. Mordecai and Haman are the two men. And then the idea is that he was trying to create a situation in which all the spectrum of people could have their wishes. Mordecai being on one end of this righteous Jew, and Haman being this very cruel, evil, hedonistic uh, figure on the, on the other end, and they should all have what they want. But the idea is, of course, it's impossible. And it's very clear in such a situation that when you say no rules, anyone can drink and do whatever they want, uh, only one, one person is going to be happier, and this is Haman. Mordecai is not going to be very happy, and he wasn't happy. And, of course, those banquets seduced a lot of Jews that came to the banquets and started drinking, and it was something very negative. It says that the whole affair happened as a sort of punishment uh, for the Jews who came to those banquets. So it's impossible to do, to fulfill the wishes of two people who are absolutely different. But if we see Achash Verosh as a stand-in for God, then the whole verse assumes a different meaning. The verse becomes... Um, instead of the king had given orders, in Hebrew it was Ken Yisadamelech, the king founded, that every person, Ish Vaish, can fulfill their wish, it means that God has founded the world, God has created the world in such a way that each individual can choose whether he wants to be like Haman or whether he wants to be like Mordecai. Kirtzon Ish Vaish as the will of one man, Mordecai, this is like the good inclination, and the will of another man, this is Haman, the bad inclination. God has found it. This is a, a, a new reading of this verse, in which Achashverosh refers to God, or is symbolizing the way God operates, governs the world. So God governs the world in such a way that each person has a free will, and the free will means he can choose to be Haman, or he can choose to be Mordecai, or anything in between. But again, that's the two extremes of the pole. So what, what we get through this is the idea that we can think about Haman and Mordecai as two poles of one person. It can be one person. We're so used to thinking about them as two different people. Now, using this idea that Kirtzon Ish Ve'ish is that you, each one of you, each person has the can choose to go in this, this direction or this direction means that every person is potentially both a Haman and a Mordecai. So it can be one and the same person. So the idea that we want to now use in order to open up the entire scroll is to say that Haman and Mordecai are the same person. Haman before they evolve, and Mordecai after they evolve. And this is the idea that the cypress shall rise and replace the thorn 
It's all one person. It's like a a cactus that is thorny on the outside. This it's Haman on the outside. It's like a thorn. It has thorns. But if you peel off the thorns, if you peel off the shell, there's a very tasteful and very fragrant uh, fruit hiding beneath it. Right? Like the, the Hebrew, like the sabris, the sabra cactus in, in Israel, that is thorny on the outside. It's usually, people say that this is how Israelis are. They're thorny on the outside and they're sweet on the inside. So this is like, here it's an image for every man, every masculine man, that there's something about masculinity that's very coarse and thorny, and that when taken to an extreme, it can be Haman-like, but this needs to be somehow peeled off and replaced, and something needs to rise and replace it, which is the inner dimension of masculinity, which is Mordecai. And now the same goes for Esther and Vashti. Esther and Vashti become the same person. They become a woman that on the outside, when taken to a negative extreme, is like Vashti, but on the inside, she has, she has the potential to be Esther. And the Vashti element needs to be cast away, cast out, and then Esther can rise out of the ashes of Vashti. So now we can think about them as one and the same thing. And we want to now go over the scroll, but the, ma the major events in the scroll, and to see how, how these things... Um, how these models of masculinity and femininity are, are replaced, are changed. Um, it means, before we go into this, it means that we need to a little bit um, humanize Haman a little bit, and also Vashti. They both need, if, we, if we're going to talk about uh, each person being a little bit of a Haman on the outside, and each woman being a little bit, each man being a little bit of a Haman, each woman being a little bit of, of a Vashti, then we need to make them less evil, <laughs> a little bit less evil. And, and actually, we have a foundation for this. Vashti, according to the literal reading, the simple reading, without the, without the, the, the rabbis, without the, our sages, doesn't come off so bad. We can totally understand her, that she doesn't want to come to her husband's drunkard party, especially uh, if we if we adopt the interpretation that he wanted her to come naked, and we can totally justify her, we can totally identify with her, and it's very hard to understand why the sages say she was so evil, and they do. They say that she was very cruel to, to her Jewish servants, and she forced them to to work naked, and it was sort of a punishment that she had to come naked to the party, and they and they they depict her as very very negatively. But if we put those midrashim aside a little bit then uh, we have a figure we can identify with. Um, and Haman, it's harder because he's very cruel and evil. Um, but we, have, we know something about him. Here it's the opposite. Here the Midrashim make it so we can, uh, we can um, connect to him a little bit more. They say that although he was evil and he died, his grandchildren are studying Torah in Bnei Brak. They're, they did. They converted to Judaism. They, the sages say so. 
בני מבני בניו של המן לומדים תורה בבני ברק. It says so in the Talmud. That the sons of the sons of Haman, so it's very strange because he was killed alongside his ten sons. So an idea I thought of today that maybe his wife was pregnant and then she converted. Many, many, Jews, many non-Jews converted at the end of the scroll. It says that many, many of the people of the kingdom converted to Judaism because they were fearful of the Jews. And, and maybe she was one of them. And maybe she was pregnant, and that means that when the child is born, he's Jewish, and then uh, his, uh, his, their children are, uh, his children are already studying Torah in Bnei Brak. And Or maybe it's something spiritual, that Haman has holy sparks, and this is said, that Haman has holy sparks. It says that we need to eradicate the memory of Amalek from under the skies. This is what we're, we're obligated to do. We read this in Shabbat Zachor. Timche et zecher Amalek mitachat ha-shamayim. Eradicate the, the memory of Amalek from under the sky. And God also says, I shall eliminate the, the uh, memory of Amalek from under the sky. But then in Kabbalah it's explained that this is only under the sky. But above the sky, Amalek has a positive root, like everything else, has a holy root. Amalek, we need to remember, is a descendant of Abraham and Isaac. He's, he's the grandson of Esau. So, he's the fifth generation from Abraham Avinu, Avraham Avinu, and also Yitzchak Avinu. And, and he wants to convert deep down. All, all of his hatred towards the Jewish people is because of a certain envy. And the, and the envy is because he, 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 he admires the Jewish people, and he really wants to, to be part of them. So Amalek can be converted if we go all the way up to his spiritual root that's above the sky, so to speak. The root that's the pure root that he has above the sky. So even Haman, even Amalek can be converted. And in fact, he, as we said, his grandchildren do convert or, or, or before that. So uh, they, both have, they both have, you know, a chance of redeeming themselves, both Vashti and Haman. And this is what we want to see here. We want to see Vashti redeem herself and become Esther, and we want to see Haman redeem himself and become Mordecai. Because, again, the, the, the two positive figures replace the two negative figures. Now, in what order does it take place, the, this uh, changing of the guards, or this replacement? In the verse in Isaiah, it's first we have the cypress rising to replace the thorn, that is, the masculinity changes first, and then we have the myrtle rising to replace the nettle, which is femininity. But in the, when you read the scroll of Esther, it's, the order is reversed. It's different. The first reversal is, of course, the very beginning of the scroll, Vashti is taken away, it's unclear if she's taken into exile or she's killed, but she's taken out of the palace, and, and then Esther is brought in. So that means that femininity rises before masculinity. Although femininity has taken many millennia to rise, once it, it really happens, once it starts happening on the surface, it's like something that's exponential. It's, it happens very fast. And it happens before masculinity rises, before masculinity is rectified. The woman rises before the man. It's a little bit like um, women, all women in the world, 
becoming more mature before the men, as we all know from adolescence. And the reason that bat mitzvah is 12 and bar mitzvah is 13. The reason is that in, in that age, women are more uh, mature than men. They're also physically taller than them. The, the girls are physically taller than the boys in the, around that age. And this symbolizes the fact that there is once femininity rises, that this whole process is sort of a cosmic historical process that took years of, of, of change, of political and social and psychological change. But once it happens, it happens very fast, and the women, femininity rises before masculinity does. And it's very interesting also, who gets rid of, who gets rid of Vashti? And has Esther brought in? Who is it? According to the literal reading, it's a minister called Memukan, Memukhan. Memukhan is the seventh and, and, and least important minister, the farthest away, the lowest on the, on the hierarchy of ministers in the palace. But he sees an opportunity to boost his career. And he gives the advice to get rid of Vashti, because she could serve as a negative example to all the women of the kingdom, that they should all be disrespectful of their husbands. And he says we should get rid of her, and we should find a very uh, subordinate, very docile, very quiet woman who will do her husband's biddings, and without any argue, arguments, without disobedience, and... And she should be a good, a good wife in the classical terms of how a wife should be. This is what Memuchan says. He's the one who gives the idea. He's the one who gets rid of Vashti, and he's the one who gets who puts Esther into the palace. According to the sages, Memuchan is Haman. They're one and the same. And when you when you have them be the same person, you realize how Haman. The very next chapter, chapter two, becomes such a high figure. He was promoted. He was promoted because Achashverosh was very pleased with his suggestion to get rid of Vashti and have Esther come in. So, in our model, we see that femininity rises, although masculinity hasn't risen yet. Masculinity is still unrectified. It's Haman. Not only that, Haman is the unwitting instrument for the rise of femininity. It sort of happens without him realizing what's going on. So let's, what, what happens to Haman? Haman sees Haman Memuchan, when we, we have them be the same person, then they, they say to Achashverosh, um, this is, you know, this can't be accepted, this is unacceptable that Vashti is not doing what you're saying, and, and now we're going to have this rebellion, all women in the, in the kingdom are going to rebel against their husbands, this is unthinkable, we should, we should immediately, very powerfully uh, demonstrate that this is unacceptable, and now we have to bring in a woman that we know will be very obedient. And they do find this woman who appears to be very obedient, which is Estelle Hadassah. But they don't realize that they're really, it's like a Trojan horse. 
they're bringing in a woman that's that and that does more to her than meets the eye. She is in fact far more dangerous than Vashti, and the reason she's more dangerous is because she's more sophisticated. She's not outright arguing or rebelling. She keeps quiet in the beginning. She plays the game in the beginning. She pays her respects to Achashverosh and to Haman and to all the people in the palace. But once the, the moment arrives when she's needed, when Mordechai tells her that we need you, then she, um, she discovers her hidden powers. And then she becomes the instrument of Haman's demise. So it turns out that he brought upon himself his worst disaster. He brought Esther into the palace and it totally backfires on him that she becomes the person to have him finally executed and replaced by Mordecai. So the idea is this. So, so what happens is this. First, it's Vashti being replaced by Estel. And this is done through Haman. Haman is the one doing it. According to the sages saying that Memuchan and Haman are the same person. So it's Haman, negative masculinity, that helps, without understanding what he's doing, he helps the rise of femininity. He's, he thinks he's doing the opposite. He thinks he's repressing femininity. He thinks he's putting femininity in its proper place, you know, quote-unquote, that they, they, should, they should know their place, and they should be subordinate. And he's bringing, he thinks he's bringing, a subordinate woman instead of a, an unsubordinate one. But of course he's mistaken. And, and when she, her true nature comes to the fore, comes to the foreground, then he realizes the big mistake that he's made. But she comes in in a way that he doesn't really notice what's going on. And then the next replacement, replacing more, uh, Haman with Mordecai, have the rise of masculinity. Who's doing this? It's Esther. Just like Haman, he was the operating force, unknowingly, unwittingly, uh, bringing about the rise of femininity, now it's Esther knowingly, consciously, bringing about the rise of masculinity. Haman replaced Vashti with Esther, thinking he's getting this uh, very sort of, you know, uh, again, docile, subordinate woman. But it turned out he was really, it's the rise of femininity. It's not what he thought. And then it's Esther performing, bringing about, consciously, knowingly, the rise of masculinity. So this is very, very interesting, just to look at this structure. Now, let's, let's try and go over the scroll and think about, again, Vashti and Esther being one person who's growing, Haman and Mordecai also being one person who's growing. And let's see the relationship that's going on between them. So, in the beginning of the scroll, we have what we call in Hasidut a back-to-back -back relationship. Back-to-back -back relationship, achor b'achor, this refers to Adam and Eve, according to the Midrash, they were created whole, but they were connected in their, they were connected through their backs. It was one figure with a masculine side and a feminine side, and they were connected in their backs, and then they needed to be separated so they could reunite 
פנים בפנים, facing each other, instead of being back to back. So back to back is a symbol for a very negative kind of relationship in which both parties are unrectified. Both parties turn their back on the other one and they're very proud and they're very self-centered and they don't really want a serious true dialogue between um, uh, the, the sexes and between people in general. It's a back-to-back relationship. So how would, do we see this? We see this in um, first Haman being uh, this very negative, forceful, uh, patriarchal sort of man who says we can't stand that women should be disobedient to their husbands and we should decree that everyone should be the ruler, the king of his home, every man, and the woman should obey him. And also, in the case of men and women speaking different languages, the language of the household should be the language of the man. This is, of course, very deep and very symbolic. It means that women are silenced. This is basically what it means. It means that they need to use, uh, they can't use their mother tongue, so they have the lower hand, and they, 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 it's harder for them to express themselves. And men can express themselves freely. So this is what Haman wants. He wants to subjugate women. He wants to bring women lower. And he's a very chauvinistic, you know, forceful, in Hebrew we say kohani, someone who likes to exert his power. This is, in, in today's language, it's called toxic masculinity. Haman is the symbol of toxic masculinity. In Hebrew, toxic is ra'el, this is toxic, and it's connected to the root orla, which means foreskin. So as we know, every man is born with a foreskin, and the first commandment that is conducted on every Jewish boy that's born is circumcision. It's in order to remove the foreskin and, and really change his masculinity, make his masculinity a little bit more subtle. So the idea is that the toxic masculinity is like a kind of foreskin or something that covers the, the masculinity, just like there's a, a foreskin for the heart that we need to remove. Okay? You should remove the foreskin of your hearts that covers your heart, so the coarse skin that covers your heart. So toxic masculinity is like this coarse skin that covers rectified masculinity. So Haman, in the beginning, is a very toxic male. Um, Vashti, again, Chazal help us with this, is a, a bit of a toxic femininity. Uh, again, we can totally understand her not coming to the, to the banquet, you know, to the, her husband's drunkard's uh, party, uh, but we also know that she was, Chazal tell us, that she was also having a very immodest banquet of her own. And she was also being as equally bad. And, and, she, and also with another thing, very simple thing, is that she's trying to do this rebellion of men, uh, sorry, of women not obeying their husbands. But it doesn't work, it also backfires. And it, it makes the situation of women in the kingdom worse than it was before, because it causes 
Haman and Achashverosh to reassert their toxic masculinity because they're so offended by her disobedience. And this is exactly a back-to-back relationship that it's the negative aspect of one person for it, reinforcing the negative aspects of the other person and vice versa. And that's what happens when you get into a fight and it just get, it keeps getting worse and worse because you're really turning your back on the other side and then you're annoying them and they become even more... They also turn their back on you, you know, psychologically, and they and because they're they're aggravated and they're annoyed and they're disrespected, and and it's it can't end well and it ends very bad. So the idea is that here it's Haman bringing about the uh, either banishment or execution of Vashti, because the way she says the way she's trying to go about her uh, feminist revolution, her trying to uh, uh, have women be have a, a stronger role, the way she does it, it doesn't work. And it only annoys the masculine patriarchal system around them. And they end up being, you know, more masculine with a vengeance. And decreeing, even worse, having worse decrees, for it. and the status of women, it becomes lower instead of higher. So this is how it how it begins. So who wins? It's very simple who wins. It's the man who wins. The man is stronger. He can shout louder. He can bang the table. He has the position in the palace. And there's no point in going head-to-head uh, in such a situation because men are, are stronger. This is when positive femininity comes into the picture. Right? Imagine that you have a man and a woman, and they're both undeveloped. They're both very childish, very immature. Uh, his masculinity feels insecure, so he becomes very, uh, you know, violent or forceful about it. And she's also doesn't know how to express her femininity. She brings, she expresses herself in a very argumentative and and uh, forceful way, and she's trying to put him down. And then they're trying to put each other down, and it's all very bad. So the first person to change, the first side to change, is femininity. Vashti and Esther are now the same person. So Haman won, Vashti is humiliated, and she feels that it doesn't work. And not humiliated, she's defeated, let's say. Not humiliated, she's defeated. And she says, I can't, I can't win you know, in the uh, in the, in, a, in the what's in the in the battlefield of men, it's not my battlefield. He can shout louder. He can hit the table harder. He has the power. It, it doesn't work. If I try to argue like a man or beat him down, he's going to win. So I need to find a more sophisticated, more subtle solution. And this is when Esther, positive, rectified femininity, is now coming into the palace. And at first it appears that now Haman is, Haman and Chashverosh, the men, the male patriarchy, they're very pleased. Why? Because they're respected. Esther respects the men, as she sees that they're very bad, that the masculinity is very unrectified here, she can tell she's not stupid. But she's also clever, she's also wise, she's also practical. 
So she says, well, I can see that all the men here are very crude because they, you know, they have those drunk parties and what I can see, it's not, it's a very bad place, but it, I'm not, I can see the potential of masculinity. We said that before in the verse in Isaiah, it was the cypress replacing the thorn before the myrtle replacing the nettle. It was masculinity being rectified before femininity. So what, what does that mean? It means that a still positive femininity can recognize that the potential of masculinity to change. It's almost like she can smell Mordechai within Haman. She can smell the potential of masculinity to change within the external appearance, the thorny facade of masculinity, which is Haman. She can see this potential. In that sense, the verse in Isaiah was right. The, it, so again, what happens here is, is this. The, the, the female side of the story can't win in the male battlefield, so she needs to retreat and come up with a better solution. One of the reasons femininity rises before masculinity is because it needs to find creative ways of rising, because it can't rise in a, in a regular, linear way. The men won't let it. The masculine aspect won't let it. It's a classic story of the weaker part of, of in a war coming up with creative solutions and winning over the stronger side. Think about David and Goliath. Goliath was strong and he had the armor and he had the sword and he was sure of himself. And then David took off the armor and just took the um, the sling. And this was a creative sort of genius, but you need to be the weaker part to come up with such a simple solution. Because once you're strong, you're thinking maybe you should get a, a bigger sword than Goliath, a better armor than Goliath. But if you're saying, that's not my game, I'm not winning in that battlefield because I'm the weak part. So I need to use my weakness in order to win over the, in order to win this this fight with the stronger with the stronger one. So David comes up with the idea of of using a sling, which is again an ingenious way. And David here is like the feminine side because he's weaker, and that the weakness forces him to be more creative. So here, the feminine aspect needs to become more creative, in the way she. Uh, takes care of herself and the way she changes this whole situation. The men don't need to because they're the ones who have the power. Goliath doesn't need to come up with, with an, any solution because he knows that he's strong. It's the advantage of the weak. The weak has the advantage of being more creative and finding new solutions. It's also the same goes for the rich and the poor. Sometimes it's the poor who are more creative than the rich. Because they need to constantly find new ways of, of, of doing, they need to improvise in all kinds of ways. So it's this, um, it's this trap that the woman finds herself in that causes her to come up with an ingenious solution, which is becoming Estelle. Estelle is a woman who knows how to infiltrate the male system 
without the male system realizing it's been infiltrated. That's what Esteri is doing. Vashti and Esther, which I hear the same person, it's Vashti is her external, uh, more immediate reaction, is to fight back and answer back and try and have this fight with Haman and Achashverosh, and then she loses. And then she realizes, well, I need to find a better solution. And then Esther comes into the palace. And Esther is this more, again, it's a, it's a new technique. It's it's more subtle, it's more pnimi, it's more um, sophisticated, and it goes in. And Haman is not threatened. Why? Because Esther respects him. And 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 she respects Achashverosh, and she respects the people around them, and then they they're able then they're able to calm down. And 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 maybe eventually hear her out also, and indeed, once Esther enters the palace, someone is trailing behind her. Who's trailing behind her? Mordecai. Mordecai comes, not into the palace, but he's now around the palace. It's sort of circling around the palace, he's outside the gate, he's there. And this is like the positive masculinity beginning to appear on the surface, through Esther. So imagine, let's say, imagine a couple, a man and a woman, and and then the they have fights all the time. And then the woman, the woman realizes she can't win those fights, so she decides to just work on herself and become a more deeper, more spiritual, more internal person. And she starts what we call doing tshuva. And she starts giving off this beautiful smell of the of the myrtle, of the hadas. She becomes like a bala tshuva. Her husband is not in the story. He doesn't follow. No, you can do your shabbat, you can do your shabbat, you can light your candles, you can do whatever, I'm not into it, I don't care about this very much. And he's still insulted by the fight they had the day before. But she is now becoming more quiet, more introverted, and she decides to start lighting the Shabbat candles and start learning Torah and start working on her own, you know, midot. And then what happens is that he doesn't realize this, but suddenly he's beginning to feel within himself the potential to be Mordechai. She doesn't tell him, be Mordechai, I want you to do a Baal Tshuva. To be, be about Shuva, I want you to uh, to change everything about you, just like I'm changing. No, she's very quiet. She doesn't demand anything. She's not Vashti anymore. She used to be Vashti. Vashti, by the way, is the same letters as Yeshut. Yeshut is like ego in the Hasidic terminology. So she now she let go of this ego. She's not trying to win any fight. She's just working on herself. She's very quiet, very introverted. She's now Esther. And the fact that she becomes Esther causes the husband to suddenly smell and see and feel that there is this potential to be Mordecai. He's very surprised by this. He's also very threatened by this. When Haman sees Mordecai not bowing down before him, he goes crazy, he goes ballistic, and he can't stand it. This is the toxic masculinity being threatened by the prospect of a more rectified holy masculinity, which is more refined and more attuned to femininity and less combative and more introverted also. 
and toxic masculinity is threatened by this. And then it starts a war. Haman starts a war with Mordecai and all of the Jews. He says, I want to destroy all the Jews. I want to get rid of this new thing that is now coming into the palace, that's now around the palace and not bowing down before me. I can't stand it. And the reason he can't stand it, using our interpretation that Mordecai and Haman are the same person, is that this is his future rectified self. Really, Haman is like the animal soul, and Mordecai is like the divine soul. And once the divine soul starts becoming a thing, then the animal soul goes crazy trying to object. And this is Haman going crazy trying to get rid of Mordecai, and, and, and maybe the entire Jewish people, while he's at it. So to make sure no, more, no, new, no, no other Mordecai threatens him or his position. So he wants to get rid of all the Jews. This is the animal soul starting to wage war against the divine soul when the divine soul, soul starts, you know, doing something and, and, and moving and rising. So, and then, what does Mordecai do? He doesn't budge, he doesn't bow down, he doesn't run away, he does tshuva, just like Vashti kind of did tshuva and became Esther, Mordecai is doing tshuva, the divine soul is working on becoming uh, what she needs to be, and this is Mordecai putting on the the sack and the ashes and praying, he becomes a Baal Tshuva. He says, I want to be free of this decree of Haman, of my own toxic masculinity. I want to be connected to my higher my higher self, my higher masculine self. And then, in fact, he comes to Esther and he says, I need your help. You're, you've risen before I've risen. You're in a higher position than I am. You're in the palace. I'm outside, outside of the palace. You've arrived at your fully feminine form. I have not yet arrived at my fully masculine form. You got rid of the Vashti outside of you. I haven't gotten rid of the Haman outside of me. I need your help. Please do not be silent. This is Mordecai talking to Esther. If you be silent then, you know, a solution will come, but you'll miss your opportunity of, of bringing about the solution. So please do not be quiet. And then she tells him, get everyone to pray, and I'm going to do my best, and you pray for me, and I'm going to, I'm going to do what I need. And then it says that he did exactly what she told him. And so now she is the teacher, and he is the student. And he's doing, he's doing exactly what she tells him to do. So, again, what happened? Femininity rose before masculinity because the weak uh, party is the one to grow and to rise before the strong party. The strong party is, what's the word? Um... It's complacent. And the weak party is more... It knows that it needs to find ways of growing and finds them. Once that happens, the strong party 
begins to feel that they can let go of their strong facade, their thorny facade, and the positive, high, subtle masculinity comes into the picture. But then there's this inner struggle within the masculine. So then, Esther says, well, I will help you. And then she starts working in the palace, which is working her magic, and getting, helping the higher masculinity to come into the palace, and the negative masculinity to come out of the palace. She can help the man grow into his full potential. The man helps the woman grow into her full potential unknowingly, indirectly. He didn't know he was doing this. It was really her working uh, and, and, you know, infiltrating his world. But once that happens, she's instrumental to helping the, the man rise into his full potential. And we see this spread the several times in the Torah, that a woman arrives at her uh, fulfillment before the man, and then she helps the man realize, rise to his own higher self. We see this with Rivka realizing before Yitzchak who the chosen son is, and then she, she, she cheats him, she goes past him, and then he agrees with her. And we see Tamar realizing before Yehuda that he needs to be the father of her children, and him not realizing it in the beginning, but then again telling her, you were right. And we see this before with Leah marrying Yaakov, and Leah is spiritually higher than Yaakov. He needs to become Yisrael for him to appreciate her, who she is. And, but she arrives at her fulfillment before he does, and she helps him arrive at his fulfillment. And there's also a famous midrash about a woman from Tzedan, this woman who couldn't have children with her, with her husband. And then at the end of that story, she arrives at her fulfillment, she reaches, she connects to her higher femininity, and she helps her husband rise to his potential as well. So this is another example of this, of the feminine figure becoming fully what she needs to be, who she needs to be, which is a stale, and then helping the man become who he, he knows he should be, but he's unable to. He finds this very hard. The inner struggle in the man is more difficult than the inner struggle within the woman. Haman is going crazy because he can't stand more. He can't stand Mordechai. For the man, it's the it's an element that is very hard. The mass, the toxic masculinity, very very um, again, what's the word? Uh, it's it has a very hard time um, letting go of its position, its role as as influencer, as as a, as a person of power, and and accepting the new nature or this another nature, second nature of masculinity to come to the fourth. There's this inner struggle, but the woman can help the man to do this. She can help him let go 
of the coarse external elements within him and that connect to the higher ones. And this is bringing Mordecai uh, into, into the palace. So, to sum up the class and to get the takeaway from this, the rise of femininity has been going on for millennia and in the recent in the past few generations is now actually really happening in, in human society and in Judaism as well. When, they, when this happens, the, the women bypass the men. They rise above their men. They get to the crown before the men do. But, and this is happening without the men realizing, and the men feel cheated and confused and bewildered because they didn't prepare and they didn't realize that just being respectful to their wives and to women generally is now bringing about this new kind of femininity which is very powerful, very strong. And then men are intimidated. Haman is intimidated by Esther. But, but the Esthers, the women who have reached their fulfillment and have connected to their higher feminine selves, they don't need to look down at the men or to make fun of the men or to mock the men, to mock the Haman of the man. They need to smell the potential of every Haman to become the cypress, the myrrh, to become Mordecai and, and help them and help them remember, reconnect to their inner Mordecai's and bring them close to the palace, and then bring them into the palace by guiding them, guiding them and, and, and showing them that they don't really want to be Haman, that Haman is just a, such a negative figure. It's not true rectified masculinity. Rectified masculinity is something very, very balanced and very subtle. And, uh, and what can rectify and replace toxic negative masculinity is not, you know, castrated masculinity. It's not masculinity that's humiliated. That only rebounds and brings Haman back with a vengeance. What works is replacing negative masculinity with rectified masculinity. With masculinity that's more heroic, truly heroic and truly, um, you know, balanced, that knows how not to bow down before what shouldn't be bowed down before, and knows how to rise tall and stand tall. Rectified masculinity is the only cure to toxic masculinity. And the women can be very, very instrumental in bringing about this positive masculinity. And it's no coincidence that the rectification of, of femininity takes place before the rectification of masculinity. The reason is that men can't be rectified without women being being without women rising first so this is our uh, our reading gender reading of the scroll of esther and may we all go into this holiday with a very joyous heart with a very optimistic heart looking at the world and trying to see how everything can be rectified and everything that has a negative appearance, a negative surface, we shouldn't, you know, crush it or, or look down upon it or see it as for what it, what it seems to be 
on the surface, we should look beneath the surface and see the potential of every man and woman to grow and evolve and to meet at the palace. The positive femininity and the positive masculinity should all rise and become kings and queens and meet at the palace and unity and prosperity and peace can uh, can can win and can can exist in the palace and in the world.